We have a pillow in my house in the living room that we picked up from Kohl's, $10, that has rules of the house. It reads as follows. In this home, we keep our promises, we use kind words, we tell the truth, we are patient, we are real. We make mistakes, but we give second chances. We give hugs, we have fun, except during football season, and we say, I'm sorry. But I had a conversation with uh, a lady in Lowe's a couple of weeks ago uh, who I think was raised in my home because we were talking about the rules that we grew up with. If you mess it up, make it up. If you wear it, hang it up. If you drop it, pick it up. If you eat out of it, wash it. If you spill it, wipe it. If you turn it on, turn it off. Remember these rules back in the 1800s? If you open it, close it. If you move it, put it back. If you break it, repair it. If you empty it, fill it. If it rings, answer it. If it howls, feed it. If it cries, love it. God is forming in Christ a new family, an extended family, an alternative family, which if you came from strong families is really good news. But if you came from weak families, it's even better news because it means the thing that you crave in your deepest being is from God and it's out there somewhere. These people, some of them from our nuclear families, most of them not, live in community with one another and these communities form what Paul called the household of God. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, I write these things so you would know how people conduct themselves in the household of God. So these things, these practices, these ways, when these communities live with one another in these ways, they become peculiar but attractive, and they become redemptive. People want into them. So what are these house rules, in a sense? These practices that the people of God in any generation, era, or culture have in common. The first has to do with our language. It has to do with the way that we speak to one another. And this has been stirring inside of me for a long time, maybe three or four years, when I was reading one day in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Timothy speaking to a young pastor said, uh, let no one despise your youth, but set an example 
in conduct and in speech, in faith, love, in purity. He calls on young people to set examples in their speech. And the note I made to myself in the margin simply said, I must learn the economy of language. This is hard for us, me especially, because it is my life, it's my job. I don't have the luxury of attending most meetings. I have to lead them. And I don't have the luxury of coming to church. I generally am called on to say something. So obviously, the more you say stuff, the more likely you are to mess it up. So I've got this mantra of the last few years that says, I must learn how to speak. In 2003, Betty Hart and Todd Riesley, both researchers from the University of Kansas, attempted to understand what they called meaningful differences in the everyday experiences of young American children. So they entered 42 different families from various ethnic, economic, and cultural backgrounds in order to, again in their words, assess the ways in which the daily exchanges between a parent and a child shape the language and the vocabulary development. What they discovered shocked the educational world. First, to no one's surprise, anywhere from 86% to 98% of the words a child uses by the time he is four, he's heard them first from his parents. No one is surprised. Beyond that, the sheer number of words that a child hears varies greatly from home to home. Those in poverty hear, on average, only half the number of words that children from working-class families hear in the course of a day, and they hear only one-fourth the number of words in a day as children from professional-class families speak. And the kind of words that children hear shapes them profoundly. They discovered that children from low-income families, in their words again, were found to endure far more instances of negative reinforcement when they compared the number of negative statements to the number of positive statements in high-income families, it was six positive statements to one negative. In working-class families, it was two positive to one negative, but in lower-income families, it was one positive to two negative. When they extrapolated this over the course of the first Four years of a child's life, they discovered that by the time a child enters kindergarten, there is a vast difference in their preparedness, not only for school, but for life. Based on the sheer number of words they have heard in the home, some of them heard 30 million more words by the time they were four than lower performing children. In our home, most of those words are from Lori. 
but the kind of words that they heard. Extrapolated over four years, by the time a child entered kindergarten, they had heard some of them on average 125,000 more negative statements than positive ones. And when you put that next to the 560,000 more positive words than negative that other children heard, the difference between them was vast. Subsequent studies have been done following these children through their early years of school, even into high school, and the differences only hardened. I'm only stating statistically what every elementary school teacher knows. There is a vast difference in a person's life before they ever enter kindergarten. And one of those differences is in the way language is used in their everyday life. That was 2003. In 2009, Nobel Prize winning economist James Heckman studied the economic disparities between families. Why did some families make so much more money over a lifetime and some so much less? Shockingly, he said, 50% of the difference had nothing to do with education and it had nothing to do with the kind of jobs they got. Gosh, I would have thought all of it came down to that. 50% of it, he said, came from unconscious skills. In his words, skills of attitudes, perceptions, and norms. All of these things, said Heckman, are learned by the time we're 18. And we would add, they are conveyed and reinforced largely through language. Talk is not cheap, church. It's extremely expensive. So when Paul said, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which builds others up so that they will find benefit in it, Ephesians 4.29, he was not talking about four-letter words. The word literally means rotten, putrid, dying, decaying. Let no rotten, decaying, putrefying words that degenerate come out of your mouth. And he was not talking about not saying mean things, but if you go into most religious homes, what you hear are two rules. Don't cuss and don't say mean things. Beyond that, we have almost no formal or informal instruction within our homes about how we ought to speak to one another. And yet now we know that so much of what people become rides on the language that they hear. Oh, if you were to sit at the table with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for a day and listen. Just listen. You would discover that 
they say different things than we say. According to Hebrews, what the Father is saying to the Son is, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above all of your contemporaries by anointing you with the oil of joy. And according to Psalm chapter 8, what the Son is saying back to the Father is, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let your glory fill the heavens and the lips of children have ordained your praise. When I consider what you have done with your fingers, I say to myself, what is the son of man? There he is. What is the son of man that you'd be mindful of him? The language that the father says to the son and the son back to the father is generative. It's creative. It expands the other's possibilities. It does not limit them. More than that, it doesn't just recognize the quality that is in the other person. The language itself creates those qualities so that love and glory and power and justice are not static qualities that just sit on top of each member of the Trinity. It is the electrical current that is between them. And if you could somehow get in that electrical current, it, it might light you up and change your conversations. The words that they use are fundamentally different than our words. And I think it's because underneath the words, their intent is different than our intent. One member of the Trinity is never using language to try and draw attention to himself. They never use language to put the other member in their place. They never use language that would help them somehow stand out because the members of the triune God are not speaking from a deficiency. They're speaking out of abundance. Their heart is full and it is outward focused. It is generous in nature. Oh, am I the only one who cares about this? Feels right now like I am. So what do we learn when we follow Jesus to the baptism? And we hear the words that the Father utters over the Son. In Matthew, he says it about the Son to other people. 
in the company of the Son, but he says it to other people. And in Mark and in Luke, he says it to the Son in the company of other people. So whether we are talking to people in the company of their friends or to their friends in the company of the person, what can we learn about language by following the baptism of Jesus? Words that were uttered before Jesus had done anything. He hadn't opened his mouth or healed a single person. And the Father is already saying, you are my beloved. I've chosen you. I love you. And I am delighted in you. He hadn't done anything. The words themselves are instructive. They all come from the Old Testament. You are my beloved son comes straight from Psalm chapter two, verse seven, where Yahweh is speaking over the king of Israel, the anointed one in Israel. And he adopts the king of Israel on that day. And he says to him, as one who represents the nation of Israel, you are my beloved son. And it makes you think of the words that Yahweh uttered to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, when he said, Israel is my son, my firstborn son, and I told you to let my son go, but you refused, so I will come and get yours. There is this possessiveness that God has, not only for the king of Israel, but Israel itself. You are the one that I love, the one that I've chosen, comes straight from Isaiah chapter 43. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh who has formed you. Hear, O Jacob, Yahweh has made you. I formed you, I made you, I love you, you were mine. Those words are not uttered over an individual. They are uttered over a people. And these last words, in you I find delight, comes straight from Isaiah chapter 42. Here is my servant in whom I delight. That's what your versions read. That's what your Bibles read. The Bible Jesus read, the Septuagint, reads like this. Here is Israel. Here is Jacob, in whom I delight. So when Jesus goes into the river that day, he goes in not only as an individual, he goes in as a nation. He is a new people. 
the new humanity, the new Israel, the kind of people Yahweh wanted Israel to be, and they could not. He goes into the waters as Israel, and he hears the words of God uttered over not only Jesus, but the people of Jesus, the new humanity. You, you, what Yahweh uttered over Jesus that day was intended to be uttered over you. And you are standing with him in the water and you are supposed to hear these words. And then you're supposed to say these words. What God wants for us is that we would be able to hear them and to feel them. And then because we do, we would speak to one another words that give life. You are my beloved. You belong here. You are part of my family. I want you close. I love you. These are words of affirmation. I have chosen you. I haven't rejected other people. But I have chosen you. I have plans for you. You bring me delight. Oh, I love it. When you are near me, I want to be in your company. When is the last time you heard anybody at work say that to you? About a month ago, I started asking members of our staff who on staff affirms you. Who says to you, you belong here? I love it that you're part of us. They said, no one. They hear it from you, but we do not hear it from each other. And I bet if I went to work with you tomorrow, it might be similar. Most of your conversations are transactional in nature the sharing of details and information. Beyond that, they are positional in nature. A controversial subject comes up, Black Lives Matter, masks or no masks, elections fair or foul, and immediately people migrate to positions and start spewing information. 
curated largely by their bias with an attempt to persuade someone from another point of view. Very few of our conversations are transformational in nature. After we have stated our positions, the conversation is over. It isn't just beginning. We might start, dear people of God, by acknowledging that we have learned our skills of communication from the culture. And the culture is fast losing its capacity to have meaningful conversations. And so as a result, even inside of Christian organizations, we polarize, we vent, we persuade, we criticize more than we inspire. We take positions more than we ask questions. So, I suspect that if we're going to improve the quality of our language, and if I haven't said it clearly, it's because once you get hold of the language in any organization, you can change that organization. All transformation comes down to conversation. Write any policy you want. It won't matter. Culture is determined by relationships, not policies. And relationships move on the rails of conversation and language. When we get hold of that, we change the culture. So if we were to do this in our families today or in our businesses this week, I suspect we would have to start by getting rid of certain things Paul said we should be rid of. First, any language that rises from anger, malice, slander, malicious talk, divisiveness, destructiveness, anything that attempts to tear somebody down or put them in their place must be struck from our conversations. Second, said Paul, any speech that is lewd, filthy, obscene, dirty, coarse, should be struck from the conversation. Oh, I didn't mean anything by it. It doesn't matter what you've meant. Unintended consequences are consequences whether you intended them or not. We would have to get rid of all conversations, said Paul, that is about controversies. Quarrels, divisiveness, sharp, antagonistic debates. They tend to polarize. 
You say, I think we need to have some hard conversations in the place where I work. Not until you've had easy ones. Dude, have the easy ones first or the hard ones will tear you apart. Are you still there? What might we say to one another? Hmm. Words of belonging. You are my beloved. I want you here. You belong to this family. You're safe. You're safe when you're here. Words of affirmation. I love you. I have chosen you. I see the greatness that God has put in you. No, no, I'm calling it out of you. I choose you. I have plans for you. You bring me joy, delight. You bring pleasure to my day. You're not my job. Might I say that I think the reason we can't say these words is because we've never heard them. People have said them. God has sent people into our lives. Teachers, coaches, counselors, friends, strangers who have uttered words of belonging, words of affirmation, and words of delight, but we couldn't hear them because of all of the other voices. If you'll allow me to play with the story, people, I think the reason we can't hear them is because only the Father can say them. These are words that must come from the Father himself and they must be heard by the Holy Spirit himself who illumines these words when the Father utters them. As a father has compassion on his children, so doth the Lord have compassion on you. Oh, I remember where I was in the car when the Holy Spirit heard those words for the first time and they exploded. I sat in the front seat of the car with my dad and just giggled. I just giggled and he, he looked at me like I was crazy. At the words that I've known, I just now heard them. Has it occurred to you that so much of the attention you are seeking in life is because you want to hear those words? Has it occurred to you that the reason you are so sensitive to criticism or slurs, you can't take it anymore, is because these criticisms and these words 
reiterate narratives that you already have about yourself. You are ugly. You are stupid. You are worthless. You are a nobody. You are a failure and you will always be a failure until you can prove to us that you're somebody. And when somebody stands up and criticizes you, that is all you hear. You don't hear their voice. You hear yours in it. In the anger that is rising within you and your adamant call for justice. Is a thin veil for a fragile inner being. Nobody heard worse and more unfair criticism than Jesus of Nazareth. And he was undaunted. I am not validating slurs or critical speech. I'm telling you, they are a problem. But sometimes your reaction to the problem is as big as the problem. And when you are living from a deficiency because you cannot hear the Father's words, you can only hear someone else's. Life will seem harsh and unfair to you. This is normally the time that I would say if you have comments to make, type those out to, type them to me. Send them to me. What I think this means, people, is the following. Before we speak today at home or before we speak in a meeting this week, could you ask yourself a few questions before you open your mouth? These are the ones that I'm still percolating. I hope, I hope they help me. The first one is, um, what effect will these words have on the people in the room? See, right now, all of the focus is on self-expression. What's important to everyone is that I put my feelings into words. But is anyone even asking what effect those words will have on people who hear them? Some of us are all about loving truth and less about speaking truth in love. 
So that's the second question. What is the intent of these words that I'm about to say? Is it simply to just get something off my chest? Is it that I might somehow prove to have information somebody doesn't have? That's a deficiency. Or is it, as Paul said, to build up those who listen? And third, the last one, is what place do these words come from? What is the state of my soul right now? Generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, the more disruptive or restless my soul is, the more disrupted and jagged is my speech. At least that's true of me. There is one big question that I want to leave with you. It's broad enough for you to slide every other question under it if you want. We'll put it on the screen. Whether you're home or you go to Sunday school classes or you want to step in the atrium and start the discussion with other people, that question is, how, how might we use language to create what we want for each other and for our family or community. Oh, you can go in a lot of directions. What are we creating now? What words keep popping up that we might put a moratorium on? What ones are strangely absent that we might breathe into the family or organization? Change begins, I think, when the Holy Spirit hears words from the Father and he anchors them in the soul of the Christian. So this morning, you imagine with me, would you please maybe close your eyes? Maybe this will help us. You move with Jesus from the banks of the Jordan River into the waters. And while you stand there praying, as Luke says, you're praying. And suddenly while you are praying, the heavens above you are ripped open. It's a thin place between earth and heaven. And then you hear heaven speak these words. This is my son, my daughter, and whom I love. I've chosen them. And they bring me immense joy. Joy.